Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, June 21st, 2018. I might have to invoke... Our standard warning today. Oh, man. And then a reminder, I'm going to be out for a couple of weeks starting next week, just to let you know. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular Pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, prophetesses, prophetesses. <laughs> yeah, those those female prophets, <laughs> apostles and apostolettes. I'm struggling today, and uh, those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching that's put forward by so many people calling themselves pastors, uh, it's like not even close. I mean, it's like not even the ballpark. It's not even on the same planet as Christianity, like biblical Christianity. And there are people who call themselves, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Really? <laughs> Why are you listening to that guy or that gal? You know, that's what you are, really. Yeah, you don't know your Bible. You probably never read it, right? You know, I, I know I'm being a little snarky, but it's it's really got to be that bad out there. And uh, so we do the comparing and contrasting, and we find that it's there's so much stuff, it just don't even come close to measuring up. <laughs> Today's episode will be a case in point, if you would. So uh, on a Tuesday, our program had no theme. Uh, today's program, no theme either. Uh, we, we note that during the summertime, things can get a little uh, squirrely on the theming uh, due to the fact that, you know, all the great heretics are out for the summer and stuff like that. And, uh, and so, you know, they, they, it's like they're not putting in all their effort, you know, for their best heretical stuff. And so... Uh, we're between heresy hurricane seasons, and so summers tend to be uh, one of those times where the the programs, you know, I, I I try to do different things. That's the best way I can put it. So let's talk about what we're going to do with today's episode. Again, no theme. 
it's the, just the theme is really bad stuff. <laughs> work. Okay, so we're going to start off with Tavner Smith, sermon he recently delivered titled um, uh, uh, Uphill Habits, The Rhythm of Right Decisions. Yeah, I don't know. So we're going to – he's basically you know, going to engage in profundity, and he's going to be quoting, without naming him, Bill Johnson. And we will cover this, and it will eventually make its way onto our YouTube channel. But, I mean, the things he says about repentance, <laughs> so he, he don't know what he's talking about. So, And he clearly has never studied Greek, hasn't studied sound doctrine or anything like that. So uh, we'll start there. Then we're heading over to the Crossing Church as we listen to Eric Dykstra's sermon from this past Sunday, Camping with Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. I just, ah! Anyway, uh, that will be – you know, I'm sitting here because I know what's coming. It's just absurd. Uh, then we're going to listen to uh, Pastor Tim Walker. He works with uh, Mike Murdoch and kind of listen to what I would consider uh, one of the standard quintessential uh, TBN charismatic, narismatic, nonsensical uh, narratives. And uh, then we'll end up hour number one with uh, T.D. Jakes on Your Opposition is Your Opportunity. Yeah, your opposition is your opportunity. Hour number two, we will be listening to Sergio de la Mora and the God Who Breaks the Rules, which, by the way, is an awful title for a sermon because if God actually broke the rules, <laughs> like sinned, like broke the commandments and stuff, uh, then we're, we're in trouble, you know, because the, God would be acting contrary to his nature. But that's not exactly what he's referring to, but it's basically a sermon of malarkey based upon a book that he's recently written. So uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. We we got a lot of ground that we need to cover. And uh, since we're going to start off with Tavner Smith, I thought this would be appropriate. I didn't know you was going to start out with Looking for a city built above Looking for a city Where I'll never die Where the saint in millions Never say goodbye There we'll meet our Savior And our love was true Come our Holy Spirit Okay, so we're, we're heading over to Venue Church. Uh, Tavner Smith is the vision casting leader there. We've noted that Tavner is a guy who actually believes something akin to Mormon doctrine. He's also a word of faith heretic. And, uh, and, and so um, we will be listening to him 
well, regaling us with a story from his life regarding uh, basketball and how he learned how to shoot free throws and how he became really, really proficient at it. And then he had this great idea, you know, let's, if this is true regarding free throws, what about regarding our decision making? <laughs> yeah, this is not a biblical doctrine. But then he's going to say something like mind-bogglingly awful, stupid, like really dumb. And that is he's going to claim that repentance has something to do with the idea of penthouses. Yeah, and he got this idea from none other than Bill Johnson. I'll explain when the time comes. Here's Tavner Smith and Uphill Habits, the Rhythm of Right Decisions. Here we go. I got to thinking. Mm -hmm. I didn't hit those shots because I had ice in my veins. No. No. I hit those shots because five years earlier... Coming out of the seventh grade into the eighth grade, my coach gave me a tip that changed my life when it came to my free throws and ended up changing my life when it came to some other things. All right. Life-changing tip from his junior high basketball coach. This is the source of this doctrine, not scripture. He said this. He said, Tavner, the key to being a good free throw shooter is finding your rhythm. Pick one thing, and when you find your rhythm, he said, try as many things as you want, but whatever feels good, and it feels like it gets you in a rhythm, find that, and do that thing every single time you shoot a free throw from now to the day you die. So my rhythm was one, two, three bounces, one spin, two bounces, and a shot. One, two, three, spin, bounce, bounce, shot. One. Yeah, reliving his glory days, you know. You think of Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite here. Two, three, spin, bounce, bounce, shot. One, two, three, spin, bounce, bounce, shot. One, two, three, spin, bounce, bounce, shot. The truth is I didn't have ice in my veins, but I could hit that shot with my eyes closed. Because for five... Oh, yeah. This will change the world right here, yeah. Years. I used to go after practice. Everybody else would leave. And when everybody else would leave, I would shoot 300 free throws and 300 three-pointers before I would go home. And so- good on you, man. Good, good, good on you. Yeah. By the way, uh, Scripture, the Bible is the source of biblical doctrine, not your eighth-grade basketball coach just saying... Hey, after practice, for almost five years, I would go one, two, three, spin, bounce, bounce, shot, 300 times. Literally, in that moment, if it wasn't a state tournament game, I could have just looked over at their bench and done it like this without even looking at the goal, and I could have hit the shot. Not because I was great, because I had developed a rhythm. Oh, yeah, man. And, and uh, you can use this rhythm for, like, walking on water and stuff, apparently, yeah. What does this have to do with Christian sanctification, holiness, you know, things like that. I'm, you know, this isn't taught in scripture. Now, as I was thinking about the message for today, I got to thinking, if that works for free throws, and this is what changed my life, I wonder if that would work for other areas of our life. Right. Yeah. I mean, this totally changed his life. The advice he took from his junior high coach. I, what about other areas of our life? What? 
what other you know what other things can I do? Bounce, bounce, spin, bounce, bounce, shot. Yeah, whoa, it's gonna change everything. Okay. And I, I got this thought process a long time ago, and it began to work in other areas of my life. But yeah, so this is what you think is an appropriate subject for a sermon during a church service because it changed your life. You don't need Jesus for this. You just need an insightful junior high basketball coach. What if we could get it in our life today at Venue Church collectively? What if we could get this principle to work in one of the most critical areas of our everyday life? What if? What if? He's been cogitating on his sofa. Oh, what if? Oh, we could change the world. Again, not a biblical teaching here. Are you ready? I'm ready. What if we could learn this principle in the area of our decision-making? Oh, oh, I'll never be the same. I'm going to be more like Jesus because of bounce, bounce, spin, bounce, bounce, shot. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you know that's where you are in life right now, right? No. Right where you decided to be. God didn't put you there. God didn't punish you. You're not being whipped because he's... Apparently, I whatever problems I'm having, it's because I haven't employed good rhythm in my decision making. (laughs) Where did you get this? Did, Did you graduate from... Well, no, there's no way you graduated from seminary. College? High school, we know you graduated from junior high, but beyond that, it's getting a little fuzzy. Upset at something you did at the past. There are spiritual attacks in our life. We do go through hardships and trials sometimes. But do you know why every one of us is where we are in life right now? Because of the decisions we have made. Yeah, the decision that people made to go to venue church rather than an actual real church, a good one. Yeah, that, that was a bad decision. Clearly, they're out of rhythm there. Aren't we? We're so like, we're not very consistent in our decision making either. And I'm raising my hand at times in my life because sometimes we make some really good decisions, don't we? And then sometimes we make some really bad decisions, don't we? And sometimes you may be like, I made a great decision. And then sometimes you're like, I could tell you about this one decision. It was a horrible decision. Again, what does this have to do with Christian sanctification, holiness, the Bible, a biblical teaching? This is just bouncing off of his experience in learning how to throw free throws in junior high. The reason is because we've not understood what level we're supposed to be asking. I, I'm going to get a headache. I just, oh. <laughs> so we were talking about rhythm, and now we've changed the subject to level. See, the reason you're at, you're at, you are where you is because you don't know which level you're supposed to be asking for decisions and stuff from God. Where did you get this? See, I, I told you at the beginning of the series that God... God's design for us is to think on a higher level. The way, when he says... 
God's design for us is to think on a higher level. Okay, got a tax for this? Repent doesn't mean say I'm sorry. It means read, go back, pent to the top. Go back to the top. Go back to the top. The original way I created human beings to think when I put them on the earth. Adam and Eve. Uh. I cannot believe how <laughs> utterly clueless this fellow is. Okay, so I'm going to back this up. I have to back it up because I want you to hear it again, and then we'll kind of break this down. This is a guy who is the pastor, the vision casting leader, the head dude, Ed Honcho, over there at Venue Church, and uh, he's, he <laughs> don't know what he's talking about. Here we go, here again. See, I told you at the beginning of the series that God, God's design for us is to think on a higher level. Mm-hmm. The way when he says repent doesn't mean say I'm sorry. It means re go back, pent to the top, go back to the top, go back to the top. The original way I create. <laughs> okay. Now, where, where did he get this from? Answer. He got it from Bill Johnson. Um, this is an excerpt from a book that, uh, uh, that Bill Johnson wrote. You can find this at Life Supernatural, uh, Spirit-Filled Resources, News, and Interviews for Your Everyday Life from Destiny Image Publishing. Let me put this in reading view so that you can follow along. Repentance Leads to Transformation by Bill Johnson. And by the way, at the bottom of the article, it has there's Bill Johnson of, uh, Bethel Church, Redding, California, and here we go. The, renewing the mind begins with repentance. That is the gateway to return to our original assignment on earth. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, yes, Jesus did say that. To many Christians, repentance refers to having an altar call where people come forward and weep at the altar, get right with God. That's a, limit, a legitimate expression of repentance, but it's not what that word repentance means. <laughs> Re means to go back. Pent is like the penthouse, the top floor of a building. Repent then means to, <laughs> to go back to, <laughs> to God's perspective on reality. I'm not making that up. Yeah, apparently, see, pent means penthouse. No. No. It's like, no, like not at all. So, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but you can type in any word in Google. You don't have to go to dictionary.com. You can type in a word, and the dictionary oftentimes will be the first thing that comes up on your Google search report. Uh, So I typed in the word repent over at google.com, and look, it says verb, feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. That's the lead definition for repent. But take a look at this little feature. Word origin. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you're not sure what the word origin of any particular word is, you can find it on Google uh, when the dictionary section comes up in your Google search res- uh, results. Click on word origin, and here's what we learn. So Latin, pen, penetere, uh, old French, pentir, old French, re. So old French, Repentir means to repent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So middle English form of old French repentir from expressing intensive force and pentir based on Latin uh, uh, penetere, cause to repent. Nothing there about penthouses. That, you know, by the way, there were not a lot of penthouse suites in the Middle Ages or in the middle uh, middle age French just uh, e- or even middle age English. Penthouses seem to be, uh, by the way, a, a modern day 20th century expression that when they started building high rise apartments and things like that. And by the way, in the Bible, if you wanted to look this up, you could look this up. In the Bible, uh, we we can look up the uh, word for repent. Uh, the verb form is meta naeo, meta naeo, uh, you know, to change meta, and then naeo coming off of the uh, the Greek word for mind, naus, and it literally means to change one's mind, to feel remorse, to repent. To be converted. That's what the word means. What Tavner Smith was saying is complete and utter nonsense. And the person he got it from was Bill Johnson, because (laughs) Bill Johnson's the guy who taught this ridiculous, nonsensical definition of repentance. And of course, Bill Johnson, he operates in the supernatural, so he would never, you know, lie or get something wrong like that, right? No, 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 no. no. Bill Johnson would never do that. So here's (laughs) Tavner Smith just regurgitating without even thinking something he heard from Bill Johnson. And it's got to be true, you know, because, you know, we we, we got to learn rhythm, you know, bounce, bounce, spin, bounce, bounce, shot regarding our decision making. So, yeah, listen human again. beings to think when I put them on the earth. All right. I'm going to back this up again. I want you to hear it. Here we go. There is that God, God's design for us is to think on a higher level. The way when he says repent doesn't mean say I'm sorry. It means re go back to the top, go back to the top, go back to the top. The original way I created human beings to think when I put them on the earth, Adam and Eve, they thought on a different level, (laughs) right? There's a, there's what level were they thinking on the ground level? Maybe the 11th floor level. No, the penthouse, there were lots of penthouses in the, um, in the Garden of Eden. Oh, a ton of them, man. I mean, in fact, they, they lived in like, like six or seven of them, you know, there in the Garden of Eden. It, it, you know, they, in fact, right next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right there in the Garden of Eden was a multi, multi, multi-storied high-rise with the penthouse at the top. They, so Adam and Eve, they were totally thinking on a whole nother level. And the fact that people believe that this is what the Bible teaches? Uh, I hate to say this. I mean, Tavner is clearly uneducated when it comes to biblical studies, sound biblical doctrine, and all this kind of stuff. But do you know what makes somebody like Tavner Smith possible? It's the people at Venue Church. They're the ones who are responsible. And let me explain why that's the case. You can find this in 2 Timothy chapter Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. And watch where the blame falls on this. So Paul, writing to young Pastor Timothy in uh, what's known as a pastoral epistle, that's what 2 Timothy is. There are three pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. 
And he writes this to young Pastor Timothy, who was a pastor of a congregation in the city of Ephesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing, and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and didache, that's doctrine, you know, doctrine is teaching. The, the do, teaching and doctrine are synonymous. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound uh, didascalias. That's, again, you know, it's sound teaching, sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And that's what's happened. Venue Church exists, and it is thriving as a little up-and-coming megachurch, and, and, uh, and Tavner Smith is a star, a rising star on the seeker-driven horizon, specifically because the people there at Venue Church, the reason they like him and, and reward him with success and things like that is because he's telling them what they want to hear. He's not telling them the truth. He's not teaching them the Bible. They've accumulated for themselves a teacher to suit their own passion. They have turned away from listening to the truth, and they have wandered off into myths. Mm -hmm. So um, if the people at Venue Church repent in the truest sense, change their mind and say that we were wrong in allowing this Yahoo to teach us this nonsense, we repent and drive that guy out, and replace him with a biblical teacher, which is biblically their obligation to do, um, then we will no longer hear from Tavner Smith. But uh, what I've noticed in the seeker-driven movement, it doesn't matter what nonsense you spew from the stage. You will never be driven out for being a false teacher in a seeker-driven megachurch or up-and-coming megachurch plant. Nope, never. You could teach, you could literally, you could teach that Jesus was the gingerbread man. And uh, and and nobody would blink an eye. What it's going to take in order for them to you know to defrock him is a moral failing. Mm-hmm. And guys like Tavner Smith, they have no clue what biblical sanctification is or holiness is. So I've noticed over the years there there is a long list of seeker driven vision casting leaders who've bit the dust morally. Uh, who taught lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of false doctrine leading up to that. And he's on track, you know, to be one of the next guys who fall. I'm not a prophet, or nor am I the son of a prophet. But I've been doing this job long enough, you know, more than a decade now, that I can see the handwriting on the wall. This guy's heading for a fall. And it's because he doesn't teach the scriptures. He doesn't know what biblical sanctification is. And uh, in and all this false teaching, unchecked by the people there at uh, Venue Church, prove that uh, they're not interested in hearing the truth. He's telling them exactly what they want to hear. Sad state of affairs. We'll pray that they repent and change their mind. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. When we come back, we're going to be hearing from Eric Dykstra and TD Jakes. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Bird 
Theater presents Church Day Select. Alright, I got a large, non-fat, decaf mocha with no whipped cream, two pumps of chocolate and diet soy milk for Tiffany. Oh, actually, it's just Tiff. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, Tiff, then. Like, thank you so much. I've never made a drink quite like this before. I can't even imagine what you call it. My friends call it, like, the why bother, but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it. <laughs> Nice talking with you. Adios. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street... It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. So Jeff said, wrecked him, wrecked him, you practically killed him. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right, use that. A little bit there. And, uh, there. That seems to have gotten most, most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So, first of all, I'm like a sinner, and I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came, and he got on the cross, and everybody's sins were forgiven, and we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all shut up and said that we loved him, and then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven, but instead these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you? You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt?
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Uh, now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, the word repent has nothing to do with penthouses. Because it doesn't. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can par- partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, Fighting for the Faith. Dot com. When you get there, you'll see our, our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. Or if you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, time for an Eric Dykstra update. Let's do this. 
Oh, it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as, as long, long as, as I, I do it with, with a flair. One effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flair. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a C. Yeah, there we go. All right, so that's our Eric Dykstra update for today. We're heading over to the Crossing Church, Elk River, Minnesota. And we're going to be listening to this past Sunday's sermon. Can you call it that? From the Crossing Church called Camping with Jesus, and uh, we will be videotaping this as well, putting it on YouTube, uh, I think under the segment of um, stupid pastor tricks, stupid pastor tricks. Yeah, I'll let Eric Dykstra explain. Here we go. It's hot in there, man. Oh, my gosh. They talked me into getting in that tent right before service. I'm like, why'd they talk me into that? It's pretty awesome in there, though. Like, I got a pillow in there, lay back, enjoyed the worship. It was great. <laughs> Actually, uh, Kelly and I haven't been paying our mortgage, so I needed someplace to crash. <laughs> now, yeah, now, all of this, by the way, that you're looking at, I mean, the super expensive wall of high-def televisions, <laughs> the tent, the and all the props, you know, the stage uh, <clears throat> setup, it, it, all of that is... Designed to be make it so that church is relevant. Yeah, you see, the Bible's not enough anymore, apparently, and and so it's all about showing the uh, the the non-believer, the 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 person who has not crossed the line of faith yet, as they say in the seeker-driven parlance, uh, to show them that they care about them. So all of this is showing how loving Christians can be by you know including all of the pop culture trappings that you could possibly imagine. And of course, every time I look at you know, stage setups like this, I keep thinking how much money is being wasted on this. It's you know, I'm pretty sure their you know their stage budget for 6 months is more than the annual budget by far uh for the church that I serve. But you know, I digress. Let's continue with. We're going to go camping with Jesus. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that, you know? Messing with you. But you know what I have? I have camped in some pretty crappy places. In fact, um, if any of you, some of you have camped with me before, but like if you've camped with me, you know that I am an expert at camping in the worst possible places. Like I, like I deserve a Boy Scout badge for worst camper ever in terms of like places to camp. Uh, just to give you a couple examples. Yeah, isn't the job of a pastor to preach Christ? Why am I learning all about your camping expertise? I mean... A <clears throat> little bit of a note here. Uh, sermon illustrations. 
Yeah, and you can invoke things in your own life if it'll help. But sermon illustrations are supposed to help you understand a biblical text. So you're working through a passage of the Bible as a pastor, and you get to one of those thorny sections that's a little tough to understand, at least on the surface. And so you can say, this is a lot like the time I did this in my life, and this happened and that's how we're to understand this passage. It, it it works kind of in that way. You you can bring you know personal anecdotal stories to bear as a sermon illustration if it'll help you explain the proper meaning of a text. Notice we ain't in a biblical text here. We're just camping with Jesus and learning a lot about Eric Dykstra. And the sermon illustrations are sans Bible. So they can't really be Bible or things to help us understand a biblical text now, can they? Uh, back when I was in college, like freshman year of college, me and my buddy Alan went camping. We we're like, oh, it's going to be awesome. We went to the beach in Savannah, Georgia. So we were like camping on the beach in Savannah. And it was going to be so awesome. Like camping right, right, right on the beach. You hear the surf. going to be so cool. So Alan, Alan had really smelly feet. And it was a tent about this size. I'm not kidding you. So there's two college guys in a tent about this size. And I, I was like, dude, man, your feet stink. And so he like, he shoved at the bottom of the tent and he broke. Literally couldn't smell worse than the sermon does. The zipper. He broke the zipper out. And I'm like, sweet, put your feet out. So he put his feet out of the tent. His feet are like hanging out there. I'm like, oh, I can breathe, man. This is awesome. And this was great until about 3 a.m. Because I realized I had set up the tent on a fire ant hill. <laughs> I'm not even kidding you. About three in the morning, all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, the story of camping on the fire ant hill with stinky feet. How does this help me understand the Bible better? I'm not seeing the connection yet. I wake up, I'm like, I'm on fire! Why am I on fire? And there's a virus in my hair. They're in the sleeping bag. They're all over in our clothes. I mean, we're. I mean, you could have used that as an illustration of maybe like the torture that people go through in hell, you know, and things like that. <laughs> you know, it's just, okay. Freaking out. We're running out of the town. We're like, get, we ran into the surf. We're like washing ourselves off. And then we had to sleep in a minivan uh, with the windows shut so the mosquitoes wouldn't get us with his stupid, smelly feet. I am a I am a lousy camper, man. Like I I I, I have camped all my life, and I am terrible at picking locations. Uh, when Kelly and I first got married, she'd never gone camping. Like I, you know, I lousy camper. I, it's you know can't you know. So should we compare his ability to preach a biblical sermon to his camping skills? Both of them seem to be lacking here. My whole life, and she'd never gone camping. And like she grew up in a family of girls, so she never really did that. And I was like, she's like a Hilton girl, so, so that's her version of camping. So I was like, come on, we're gonna go camping. She's like, okay, and like she's we're newly married, so she's she still like wanted to trust me. <laughs> so we borrowed a guy's tent and uh, camped on the Georgia hillside, and it was awesome, except the tent leaked. I'm talking it like torrential rain and the tent like leaked and it was it was cold out. You know, I have some great like camping stories and, and the outcomes are awful. I mean, and that's what makes the story so great. But I don't share them from the pulpit. No, I mean, you want to hear these? Come to my house on a Sunday afternoon, you know, hang out with my family after church and you know, while we're kicking up our feet, enjoying a meal together, maybe a little barbecued steak or something, you know, or barbecued hamburgers and some good old sweet corn, you know, and, and I'll regale you with some of our camping stories. They're epic, you know, uh, but 
what is the point here? Uh, what is the purpose of this portion of the sermon? The, po- the job of a pastor, by the way, is to get this. Preach the word. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't make that up, by the way. That's not me just being ornery. If we open up our Bible and maybe go to like 2 Timothy chapter 4, and, you know, the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy, you know, says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, watch this, preach the word. Yes, that's the job of a pastor. Reprove, rebuke, be ready in season, out of season. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. So apparently now we're wandering off into not just merely myths, but we're wandering off into personal camping stories that are not helping us understand a biblical text because Eric Dykstra is not actually doing his job given to him by God, not me, is, you know, preach the word. And the, the sleeping bags got all wet, and then, like, you got, you know how you get chilled when you get cold? And, like, in the middle of that, we had one little candle. So we lit the candle, and we were trying to, like, keep ourselves warm with the candle. I mean, it was bad. And then, and then in the morning, this isn't even the worst part. Then in the morning, I get out, and I'm an Iowa boy, so I don't know much about Georgia clay. But Georgia clay is great as long as it's not rained on. It's nice and solid, rock solid. But when it gets rained on, it turns to tar. <laughs> I walked out, I looked at our truck, and all four wheels are, are three quarters buried. And it's like sitting on the, sitting on basically the whole frame is like sitting on the ground. And we couldn't get the thing out. Like it was like, we had to get a bunch of people and like we're pushing and shoving on it. Cause I'm such a great camper, man. I pick, I pick great spots. <laughs> then my kids get like, my kids kind of come along. I'm like, all right, kids, we're going camping. And so we went to this, this campground in, 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 in Iowa, in Northeast Iowa. There's an awesome campground called Strawberry. I mean, why should we care about this? I mean, his camping stories are clearly he had like one good one. And now we're like, scraping the bottom of the barrel here. What purpose does this serve again in preaching the word? And there's like 500 foot bluffs overlooking the Mississippi. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a great area. I mean, it's beautiful. We took the kids spelunking in a cave and we're all, it's so cool. Except where I put the tent up, there was a bunch of dead trees. Um, and things live in dead trees. And I didn't think about that. And I put the tent up and in the middle of the night, I'm not kidding you. It was like Night of the Living Dead with raccoons. And there was like, ah, oh, raccoons like everywhere. Like we had one of those like screen porch things to like keep all, they were underneath the screen porch. They were in all the foods. They ripped the cooler open. They were in stuff. And then like, cause we kept trying to get the raccoons out. Well, the guy who's camping next to us had a Jeep with a soft top on it. And they actually managed to get inside the soft top. And about three in the morning, they were standing on the steering wheel on the horn. Burr, burr, burr. Ah! And then they would, then they would like, we'd chase them out and like they would move off the, uh, onto the dash because it freaked them out too. And then a few minutes later, they stand back on the horn again and burn. And it would, I mean, it would scare the, the snot out of us. All cause I'm I, like, how many of you agree I deserve a badge? I deserve a badge. I am a terrible chooser of location. You, you pick a bad spot for camping and it can really mess you up. And there, there's a spiritual principle here and this is. So, so, so notice something here. We're not getting our theology from the Bible. No, 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 no. He, he's learned via his bad campsite picking abilities that there is a spiritual principle here. 
yeah, let, let, let me let me take a look at a different uh, portion of scripture and uh, actually same book. Um, yeah, here it is, Second Timothy chapter three. We'll just back up a little bit again. Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy, pastor of a congregation in Ephesus. Um, here's what he says to him, starting at verse 14. But as for you, young Pastor Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Here the uh, Greek word is grammata, writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now watch this. All scripture, and here the Greek word is graphe, again, writing. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Yeah, I, you know, I hate to break it to Eric, but um, Christianity has literally thrived for 2,000 years without anybody being able to um, have the need to, for him to exegete the spiritual principles out of his camping experiences. Yeah, it's true. Yep, that's right. In fact, Christianity will survive long, long into the future if Christ doesn't return, and nobody will actually rely on moving forward the spiritual principles drawn from Eric Dykstra's camping experiences. Yeah, so isn't that, isn't that weird? I mean, he's literally trying to draw a spiritual principle from his inability to pick a good camping site. Let me back this up just a smidge, and let's listen to the spiritual principle that he thinks we need to be hearing, learning as Christians. You know, this is going to help us with our discipleship. All because, I'm I, like, how many of you agree I deserve a badge? I deserve a badge. I am a terrible chooser of location. You, you pick a bad spot for camping, and it can really mess you up. And there, there's a spiritual principle here, and this is kind of the conversation I want to have today. Like, because I've been gone for two weeks, I've been really processing what do I want to say when I get back. And this message is more of just a Father's Day message and more of like... Yeah, I mean, as a pastor, <laughs> you know, usually I didn't like... All right, what's the assigned text for Sunday, and how do I properly convey what this thing means? You know, yeah, that's why I follow a lectionary as a pastor, so that uh, my people are not tormented by my whims. You know, I'm given a body of biblical text to work through every week, and uh, that's what I focus on, you know, doing here. But uh, what can Eric Dreikstra possibly think he needs to tell everybody? I need to tell him a spiritual principle. No idea what that is. That spiritual principle I learned while camping. My heart for you, my heart for the church, my heart for, honestly, what I believe we're called to be mm-hmm. and to go towards. Yeah. And so the concept I want to talk about really is about camping. Mm. In fact, I want you write this down for me. All of us are on a journey with God, and where we camp can hurt us or help us. Wow. <laughs> That's all you got. Wow. Okay. Uh, so pretty much there's no way to save this sermon. It's, it's, 
it's for destined for the rubbish heat of history. Um, okay, so all of us are on a journey with God, and where we camp can either hurt us or help us. Write that down, folks. Maybe at the back of your Bible. Yeah, it's, it's a spiritual principle he learned through his failures at being able to pick good camping sites. So, yeah, there. Yeah, my Christianity will never be the same. In fact, I can feel myself just getting closer to Jesus and my holiness. Woo! I'm almost up there with Mother Teresa now uh, after uh, learning this spiritual principle from Eric Dykstra's life. <sighs> and there's the problem. Job of pastors to preach the word. No doctrines or teachings uh, outside of the Bible are needed. In fact, if you're believing a doctrine or teaching that isn't found in the Bible, yeah, it's not Christian. It's not biblical. And so, um, yeah, including the important principle of being on a journey and where you camp can either help you or hurt you. Moving along. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash Some people say it's folly But I'd rather have the lolly With money you can make a splash There is nothing quite as wonderful as money Money, money, money nothing like a newly minted pound Money, 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 money Everyone must anchor for the butchness of a banker It's accountancy that makes the world go round You can keep your Marxist ways But it's only just a phase For it's money, money, money makes the world Money, 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 money. All right, so we're heading over to uh, T.D. Jakes's uh, Potter's house as we listen to a message titled, Your Opposition is Your Opportunity. I have no idea what he's talking about. It's a very strange narrative that we're getting from him, and it is not based upon sound biblical exegesis or properly understanding uh, the Bible from you know the fact that it's all really pointing to Jesus. But uh, let's see where he goes with this. Here's T. Jackson. Your opposition is uh, your opportunity. So Jesus just did this big thing with these 5,000 people feeding them fish and loaves and stuff. And, and they went back to eating, eating, eating with Wonder Bread in between their teeth and, and fish bones in between their gums. And talking about, man, this heavenly food is awesome. It's great. And, and so people started believing on him. And the more people believe in you or like you or help you or support you, the more people hate you because it creates an opportunity for envy. Your... <laughs> Which version of the feeding of the 5,000 are you reading from? I, I'd i like to see the text. Please notice. So this is a bad sign. It usually just ends up very poorly when the vision casting leader begins with his own theology and then goes, you know, kind of backs up into the biblical text to kind of make it look like it teaches this stuff. But yeah, you're supposed to go Bible first, work through biblical text in context. Then you draw out the theology that's in the text. Success in any level creates an opportunity for envy. The only way to avoid it is to stay down. If you lay dead, even the animals won't bite you.
the risk of being bitten is the cost of getting up. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Yeah, I, I hear what you say, but what are you talking about? Which the, the feeding of the 5,000 is not about this. And you have to decide, are you so concerned about being bitten that you're willing to spend the rest of your life laying dead? Or is there something pumping down inside of you? Nobody got bitten or laid dead after the feeding of the 5,000. They said, bite me or not, I'm getting up. I'm going to be the best me. I'm going to do all I can. Yeah, the feeding of the 5,000 isn't about you being your best you. Even if it risks you hating me, I'm going for it. That's the choice you have to make or don't get in the game. Jesus now is hated in Judea because he just fed these thousands of people and he's working these miracles. And, and so it's not wise to go to Judea. Okay, It's not? It's not wise to go to Judea? What are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus traveled every year to Jerusalem, and that's in Georgia, you know. Ha! <laughs> Where are you coming up with that? It's not wise because they hate him in Judea. Now, it's not the church folk kind of hate, because church folk hate you and grin in your face. <laughs> this is that real dangerous hate you. They wanted to kill him. Right. Yeah, they, they wanted to kill him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they wanted to kill him. They're going to want to kill you too, apparently. Notice how he's taking the life story of Jesus and then basically saying, you know, hey, you know, he was great. When you try to be great, you're going to have haters too. Like Jesus had haters. That's really not the narrative of scripture. Talking about me at the barbershop is one thing. Stabbing me in the chest is a whole different reality. They wanted to kill him. The, the atmosphere, the, the, one of the, I don't even know if they played on TV, there was a, a movie called Spartacus. It sets you in the era that the Bible is written. They didn't take no junk. They cut your head off. It was dangerous to go to Judea. Here comes... A feast of tabernacles. That means everybody is going to Judea. And now... Yeah, the, that's one of the three feast days. Uh-huh, yep. The one who has the most to say can't go to Judea without risk. And your point is what exactly? Notice how the narrative is narcissistic. It's all about you. People have come from everywhere. To speak in Judea is to speak all over the world. But if he goes to Judea, they are going to kill him. Isn't it amazing how your life when you finally... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down there, Tex. So... This text isn't about my life. This, what story are you exegeting again? Which passage are we in? Because the Gospels are about Jesus. I, I see you put biblical references up on your TV screen. 
And supposedly you're referencing something in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of John, you know, six and seven. Both 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 Gospels are the same Gospel here. And um, John specifically says at the end of his Gospels, not Gospels plural, Gospel singular, that these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. Yep, that's why John wrote his gospel, so that you would believe in Jesus Christ. So it's weird. You're turning Jesus' life into some kind of a parable that shows me what to do when I experience, uh, you know, opposition when I decide, you know, to be, you know, to really excel in my life. But that's not what these texts are about. Prayed and prayed and prayed and you finally get the opportunity you've been waiting all your life to get. If you reach out to take it, there's a threat. <laughs> reach out. What opportunity am I supposed to be finding in John 6 and 7? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's a risk. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. Pray. Let me just give you some scenarios that are practical. You pray, Lord, I want this career opportunity. I want this door open. I'm believing you for this position. And oh God, if you could just give me this position, I am the perfect person for this position. And it will be perfect and everything will be wonderful. And I can step into that role. But you didn't know that something in your family was going to go crazy when it did. And if you take this position, you could mess up everything at the house. And so you're standing. <laughs> What you're talking about has nothing to do with what these texts say. Like this. Anytime God answers your prayer and the opportunity presents itself, there are always opposing factors that make success not taste successful. Success will taste stressful. I I feel like something's wrong here. Okay. It's like, have you ever been in a room and somebody's talking and you're not, you feel like you know what they're talking about, but then as they continue to talk, you realize, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, this, none of this has anything to do with John 6 or 7. Because your opportunities come wrapped in opposition. Uh huh. So John wrote his gospel, at least chapters six and seven, to help us understand that opportunities that we have in our lives will come wrapped in opposition. I, yeah, wow. Where did you go to seminary again, and how do you figure? You finally got situated where you could go back to school. You got your business together. You got this together. You got your life together. And here comes something that hits you in the back of the head that says, you don't have time to do this. That's selfish. You finally settled, okay, I'm going to be single. Okay, I'm cool with that. I'm old enough now, I'm wise enough now, I've reached a point now, I can handle it, I'm all right with that, that's good. Me and Jesus, get up when I want to get up, I don't have to cook, I don't have to clean, nobody's drawers to wash, nothing to do, I'm good with that. 
And then you get a phone. Hello. Who is this? Mabel, you know who this is. talking about something totally different than what the what the gospel of john talk is talking about and notice he hasn't read anything from any portion of the gospel of john this is just like bizarre (laughs) the advisors say to him This is very important. The people around you have everything in the world to do with the decisions you make. To have access to the man of God puts him at risk because he is most vulnerable to the people that are closest to him. For the people he has around him says, look, Jesus, let, let me tell you the truth. You're doing the right thing in the wrong way. You, the, the miracles that the people need to see to believe in you, they don't get to see them because you're always doing them behind closed doors. You told the man that you cast the, tomb, cast the, the demons out of it, the tomb of Gadarenes. You sent him home. We could have used him. Where do Jesus' advisors say, you know, you, you sent the guy home from Gadarenes and we could have used him. Uh, can you show me which text in the Gospels where Jesus is confronted by his disciples about that. I'd like to see that, please. You, the last person you heal, you told them not to tell anybody. That's why they don't believe in you, Jesus. Your own brothers don't believe in you. It's time for you to face the facts. He's inventing, like, yeah, dialogues now. Yeah, he's, that's, he, he's adding to Scripture because those, um, those confrontations don't appear in the Bible. This is... Really wackerdoodle. Wow. You healed that woman with the issue of blood and didn't even do nothing with it. She what? just got her here. We could have used her testimony. You didn't say nothing about it. What? None of the disciples ever said that to Jesus. You keep doing your greatest stuff in private, Jesus. That's what's wrong with the movement. Nobody said that to Jesus. Show me the text that says that. Yes, you took two fish, five loaves of bread and fed 5,000 people, but it was out in the desert. When are you going to do your stuff on center stage so that the world will know that you're Lord? Your brothers don't even believe in you. Uh, can, could you show me that in the Bible? I'd like to see that conversation, the disciples rebuking Jesus in this way. Yeah, you're adding to the Bible here, dude. Jesus says, I am not going to read my lips. You go. The world doesn't hate you. They hate me. Yeah, maybe this is found in one of the Gnostic Gospels. I'm kind of at a loss here. You are advising me into a position where you are not at risk. Go yourself. 
That's what's happening in this text. Uh, no. And Jesus said, no, that's not what's happening in this text at all. You just did something called eisegesis, reading something into the biblical text that is not there. I'm not going. Y'all go ahead. They shut the door. Boom. Bah! And Jesus said, let me get dressed. I, I, I'm going to sneak up there, but I'm going to Judea. I'm going. I'm going because, you know, it's a feast. Everybody's going to be there at the feast. And I'm running out of time. Whatever I'm going to do, I got to go ahead and do it now. And when you are running out of time, you have to understand that you have to take risk. Where's the part where Jesus says, I'm running out of time, so I need to take some risks? <laughs> I, this is unbelievable. Let's, let's take a look at John chapter 7. I mean, because they, they referenced it. All right, so John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, yeah. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to him, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Now, a little bit of a note. I mean, he's sort of, kind of describing what's going on in this text, but he's embellished it to the point where what he's saying doesn't actually recognizably, you know, comport with what the text says when you read it out that he's he's embellished it so far that now it doesn't make any sense so my you know my time has not yet come uh you know but your time is always here the world cannot hate you it hates me because i testify about it that its works are evil Mm -hmm. note that uh, td jakes left that part out for you go up to the feast, I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, it is but his who sent me. If anyone's, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, is, uh, the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? So why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus said, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? 
do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. So there it is in context, and this is not a text about you learning how opposition creates an opportunity for you, especially if you've chosen to you know, ex- make your life exceptional or something like that. Because you can't afford to sit around and say, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Hey, Sarah, Sarah. Notice how they were singing that when you were 18? Ain't nobody singing that now? Because it ain't K-Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. You got to make it happen or it's not going to happen. You got to get up off your hind parts and bust a move or nothing is going to happen in your life. That, that has nothing to do with the Gospel of John chapter 7. Uh, again, um, we're going to note something here, is that Second Timothy 4 is a prophecy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And... Uh, T.D. Jakes is one of these fellows who is quite adept at uh, spinning myths. You know, just he's like a myth factory is the best way I could put it. And that's kind of the problem. They're all loving it. They're slurping up this stuff because he's uh, scratching their itching ears. But he's not calling them to repent. He's not calling them to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Yeah, no, like not at all. Instead, what he really is doing is telling them what they want to hear, and they are rewarding him greatly with huge wheelbarrows full of money. Yeah, because that's actually what T.D. Jakes is all about. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we will be uh, listening to a sermon by Sergio de la Mora about the God who breaks the rules. Yeah, we'll be right back. Years are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program 
and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. teaching what's that we don't gather in church to hear the bible what kind of backwards thinking is that all about all right let's do this right Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is uh, delivered by Sergio de la Mora, who is one of these itinerant preacher types. He actually delivered this at Elevate Life Church earlier in the month. name of the message is The God Who Breaks the Rules, which is a provocative title because if God actually broke the rules... You know, like the Ten Commandments, then God is evil and not good. And so I find it fascinating that uh, over the course of doing this job as a pirate, I have heard many a fellow talk like this. And I have yet to hear anyone properly handle a biblical text while doing so, which is actually the problem. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Sergio de la Mora and the God Who Breaks the Rules. Here we go. Andy, I want you to take out your Bible, your iPhone, your iPad, even that thing called an Android. We accept those here too. <laughs> and I want us all, um, you know, even if you're in McKinney, is that the city we're in? McKinney. Everyone in McKinney, would you please stand as well? And we're going to start reading from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. The message that I'm preaching to you is called the God who breaks the rules. And I want to start in verse one. The Bible says, now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul and I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask 
with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man. God is always looking for a man. Find a man, the Bible says, named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my... God is always looking for a man. This is the story of the anointing of King David. The one whom Jesus will sit on the throne of for all eternity. And you're turning into something about me. God's always looking for a man. Oh boy. King. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Well then take a heifer with you. The Lord replied. And say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. Every time God wants to reach a son or daughter, he does it through the father. And that's why dads are so important as the heads of the home. Or if there isn't a father in the home, as the mother of the home. He'll always work through you to your children. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed when he arrived at Bethlehem. And the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and to walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one. And then Samuel said to the next son, Shimea, this is not the one. And in the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then he asked Sam, and then Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? How many of you know that God knows if you have kids out there still? (laughs) And then Jesse said, well, there is... God knows if you still have children out there still. What are you talking about? Well, the youngest, but he's out in the fields. He's watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down until you to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil that he had brought. And he anointed David with oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day. On This is the word of the Lord today for our service. Come on, give God praise because he's about to do great things. Would you take your seat with me today? I really believe that when we read the Bible, we have to constantly give God permission to do new things in our life. What? Why do you think that we have to give God permission to do new things in our life? That would make me God. I'm sovereign. Yeah. That's 100% backwards. That is nonsense. What kind of God do you believe in? There's God in heaven. 
you know, I really want to do something new in your life, but um, you haven't given me permission to do so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the powerless deity who's totally up in heaven going, oh, I, I, I want to do things, but you haven't given me permission. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Sometimes what happens is we get stuck in our revelation of God. You know, as your relationship with God matures, God begins to unveil to you parts of him that you didn't know. You know, we never... God begins to unveil parts of him you didn't know. Again, that doesn't even make any sense. I learn about God from Scripture. And what he has revealed to humanity about himself and his nature are all, it's all there in the Bible. If I want to understand God better, I need to understand the Bible better. What are you talking about? Reveal all of who we are to people who we meet. It's over the course of time that we learn new things about them. Did you know that that's how God is? And what I am fascinated about God in this story is that when God wanted to find a new king, he was willing to break social rules, cultural rules, and even religious rules to find David. See, when God said to Samuel, I want to find a new king, and Samuel's first response is, I can't do that. How can I do that? It was like Samuel was saying to God, how can I find another king while the present king is alive, he'll kill me. Right. Actually, it wasn't like he was saying that he actually said that. It wasn't like it was actually what he said. And <laughs> he would have been, you know, there's a real possibility of him being tried for treason. Yeah, that's how that usually works in monarchies, you know? And what God said to him is, Samuel, I need to help you understand who's asking you to do this. It's me that is asking you to do this. Because you know what can happen without even knowing it? Is you could become so over familiar with God. And then when he asks you to do something, you actually have an argument with him. Because you've known him for so long and it could... What? Where are you getting this? This is not part of 1 Samuel 16. Very well be that Samuel had been the prophet of God for so long that even he himself had developed some rules that God needed to break in him. Uh, no text says that. You're adding it to the biblical text. You've, in, you've literally inserted something in the Bible that isn't there. Because sometimes we can become so used to God, used to church, used to the Bible, used to even being in a wonderful church like this, hearing worship like this. Or you're, maybe you're at McKinney right now, and you're there every week, and through that screen, you hear and see how God is working. And it's so easy to take for granted that you're part of not just a church. This is a move of God that is happening here at Elevate. Come on, somebody. Yeah, that's part of the false narrative there. Yeah, you know, the rest. If you go to a church, you know where the pastor, you know, <sighs> preaches from the Bible. Yeah, and you know, it's small. Yeah, that's not a move of God. See, God's specifically chosen Keith Craft. I mean, he's he he's to to lead a move of God. All those other churches, they're out. You know, they 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 the pastors may have had opportunities, but they didn't measure up the way Keith Craft did. 
uh, no, the Cathedral of Frisco is super special. And uh, and so you need to recognize that specialness, and uh, your church just you, you probably should fold, and everybody needs to go to Keith Crane. That's how that narrative works, by the way. And so today I want to talk to you about the five characteristics of people with whom God uses to break the rules. God wants to do something new in your life. And I want you to write these. He, he does. Just because you've misquoted and misunderstood and totally botched the proper understanding of 1 Samuel 16, God wants to do something new in my life. And the, there's five characteristics of people with whom God breaks the rules. So do you want to be like David? You know, God broke the rules for David. He'll break the rules for these people who have these characteristics. This is nonsense. Five things down. Because I really believe one of them has your name on it. One of these points is going to be for you. It's going to be for your marriage. It'll be for your children. Because I believe that today, God woke me up to tell you. He wants to break some rules in you. Because he wants to do something. You believe God told you that, really? I, I don't believe you at all. I don't think God said any of that stuff to you at all. They knew. And today, as you look at this story, I want you to find yourself in this story because God wants us to discover him as the God who... No, we're not in the story. The story actually points to Christ, not us. It points to Jesus. Breaks the rules. Number one, would you write this down? The first characteristic of people with whom God breaks the rules are people who give God permission to break their rules. Seven. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. With biblical text says that God needs us to give him permission so that he can break the rules for us. Is it in Ninth Hesitations, 42nd Corinthians? Where did you find that? said, how can that be? He actually said to God, I cannot conceive it in my mind that you want me to do this. How can it be? And it's so many times we're like that with God. Like God wants you to step out of your comfort zone. How can that be? God wants you to do something in your marriage. How can that be? Or God is leading you through a process that you never thought you would go through. And yeah, you let's take a look at that text, by the way, and we'll pay attention to the details. And we'll see, did Samuel give God permission to do something new in his life? 1 Samuel 16, 1, Yahweh, the Lord, said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being the king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And Yahweh, the Lord, said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. All of that dialogue was God giving orders to Samuel. Nowhere do you see Samuel saying, And Lord, you know, I'm going to give you permission right now to do something new in my life. You know, that This is absurd. The text literally says God commanded him and Samuel obeyed God's command. 
day. How can that be? And God needed to break the rule in Samuel. The rule that says, if there's going to be a king, that he has to look a certain way and be a certain way. And maybe there's rules inside of you today. Rules like, I will never forgive my parents. Hello. Or like, I will never forgive my father. Or I will never invite my dad. Or I can never forgive my boss. Or I'll never forgive my wife. Or I cannot forgive my husband. And so what happens is, on the inside of us, we develop these rules. And when I wrote this book, Paradox, The God Who Breaks the Rules, there's a chapter in there called, How God Qualifies Unqualified People. And sometimes, God needs to break us of our rules to requalify us for the next season of our life. What? (laughs) Where are you finding that? Because sometimes we're stuck in a season. And God says, let me break the rule in you that says people like you don't get to buy a house. People like you don't get to start a company. People like you don't get to have a strong marriage. People like you don't get to... The Bible doesn't teach any of this. He's scratching itching ears. Which is why he's been invited to this megachurch. Yeah. Strong kids. Well, I've come to tell you the God who breaks the rules has come to Frisco and he wants to see some hearts turn and some lives changed. Number two, I want you to write this down as well. People whom God uses to break the rules are people who don't often qualify socially, but they qualify spiritually. Yeah, again, I'd like to see uh, where does it say in Scripture that uh, one of the qualifications or characteristics of people for whom God will break the rules is they don't qualify socially but qualify spiritually. I'd like to see that text, please. Is it in the book of Hezekiah? Yeah, where'd you see this? I'd, I'd like you to show me the chapter and verse. When Samuel was there in front of God, he looked at, you know, the eldest and he said, surely the Lord is anointing is upon this one. You know, sometimes we could be in a family construct. And yeah, that's just called presumption on the part of Samuel. It's not a spiritual principle. No. And you know, maybe the older sister, the older brother, it is obvious that they're the favored ones. You can even go to school with your, with your friends or, or with your siblings and even feel like it just seems like at school, everybody else wanted my sister or they all wanted my brother. And it's very easy to feel like you're not the one. But I've come to say this to someone. You may not qualify socially. You may not have the most followers on social media. And your page may not look as clean as other people's pages. And you may still be working on yourself and wondering, you know, when am I going to get my brand right, my vibe right? But I want you to know in the heart of God, things are different. God is... God isn't looking for those who are accepted socially. He's looking for those who qualify spiritually. It's an insight. Uh Uh-huh. So how how does one qualify spiritually? I'd like to know what those qualifications are. 
job church and sometimes we we marginalize who we are on the inside or we marginalize our spiritual life and so i want to speak to the person who's in prayer at night when others are sleeping i want to preach to the person who's been believing while others been doubting i want to preach to the person who's been forgiving when others have not been forgiving i want you to know that god sees you god knows you and god is ready to break the rules for you because you've qualified spiritually. The Bible says God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise in 1 Corinthians 1.27. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the wise. This is the paradox of God. God is a paradoxical God. In other words, He always waits for the right time to move in your life when it doesn't make sense. See, sometimes... Yeah, that's not what it means when it says that God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. In fact, there's a context to that text, and there's a very specific person that uh, is um, in mind there, and it's not you or me. Mm -hmm. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the cross, the word of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It, the cross, is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. 1 Corinthians one twenty. Now, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block for Jews, and it's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For So consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in, in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh huh. Our wisdom comes from God, and Christ is our wisdom. The preaching of the cross is our wisdom. Yet to the world it is folly. Paul goes on then in chapter 2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh-huh. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, much trembling. My speech, my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yeah, so what this guy is doing is ripped that text out of context 
which you cannot understand properly without its connection to Jesus and the preaching of the cross, which appears to be folly, but is actual wisdom from God and how our weakness then is supplanted by the wisdom of God, which is Christ. That's the point. But he ain't preaching Christ. No, he's preaching something else. This is more akin to what we heard uh, T.D. Jakes preaching. We think that it should be like this. And God says, really? I'm going to wait till you're at your weakest point before I show you my greatest strength. And sometimes we think, God, I feel ashamed. about God's greatest strength is Christ in the preaching of the cross family or about my situation and God says that is the right time for me to show my glory through your shame to people who feel like you don't deserve it never underestimate the hand of God never underestimate your situation never think that God is not in the mix in your story God is always at work and God is ready to show you he's going to break some rules to get you to where you need to be your family is next in line for a breakthrough uh, no, First uh, Samuel 16 doesn't teach that my family is next in line for a breakthrough. Yeah, this is uh, scratching, itching ears here. I love this about God. That's why when I wrote this book, I wrote it from a place in my life where God was revealing to me, Sergio, the God that you've known me to be. Is not the God that I am in your life right now. You know, because sometimes we, des- we develop a plan and a pattern with God. And God began to break my heart for people. And I, God began to break my heart for souls. And when my heart was being broken for souls, God started revealing to me who was on His heart. I want you to write this down. Number three, the third characteristics of people with whom God uses to break the rules are people who are chosen by God, not just called by man. You know, sometimes men choose men, but God chooses who he wants to choose. And sometimes we choose based on who we think. The Bible says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, few are chosen. In the same way all the sevens, all of uh, seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Could it be that you're the one? Could it be the reason why you needed to be at the service right here in McKinney watching me? Did you see what he just did there? He literally read where in the narrative it says, could it be that this is the one? And he changed the subject from David to you. Yeah, this is narcissism on parade here. Preach to you through a screen is because the truth is you are the one. Could it be that the reason? No, I am not the one. Christ is the one. And it's important to note that, you know, in the Old Testament, yeah, one of the questions you need to ask yourself, why are we following, you know, the stories of these people? Those people whose lives are documented in the scriptures in the Old Testament were following the bloodline of Christ. Think of it as the scarlet thread of history. We're reading about the bloodline of Christ. And now the promised seed, the Messiah, up to this point in the story, has come to David. David hasn't had any children yet. So you can say that the unborn Savior of the world is in the loins of David. Uh Uh-huh, who is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. 
you miss the whole point when you make it about you. I mean, by a, a long shot, you know, it's like 180 degrees the wrong way. This is backwards. Your family has gone through so much drama is because your family is the one. Could it be that the reason why you personally had to have that breakup with that person that led you to a breakdown in your life that's leading you to a breakthrough in your heart so that you can have a breakdown? Uh, utter nonsense. Scratching, itching ears. Extraordinaire. That's what Sergio De La Mora is doing here. Moment. Because God wants to show you. He'll break the rules for you, for your family. But you have to give him permission. Come on, church. Give him permission. Believe with me that God. Please give God permission. He needs a permission slip. He's incapable of doing anything. He's not really the sovereign, omnipotent Lord of, of heaven and earth. You are. And he can't do anything without your permission. This is uh, the theology, and this is just nonsense. Is that work? I want you to write this down today. Number four, the fourth characteristic with whom God uses. To break the rules three. He uses people who are soiled, yet God is ready to sanctify. People that are soiled. Now this is really going to blow your mind. Yeah, that's everybody. Every single one of us is born dead in trespasses and sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, as far as like the entire pool of humanity, ain't nobody to pick from that ain't soiled. So, I mean, that's... <laughs> Be like saying, so in order to be qualified for this, you have to be a human being. Right. Okay. You know, based on how long you've been a Christian, this is going to make sense to you. See, when you served God for a while, you begin to develop, well, a perspective. You begin to think like you know God's next move. And one of the things I've learned as a pastor and as a father is that be careful when you anticipate the next move of God. The best thing to do is have a posture of humility and submission to wherever God wants to take you, you're going to move with Him. Because I've learned over the years, and some of you possibly have learned this as well, sometimes you think God is looking to use someone, but He uses the person that you never thought He would use. He uses the soiled person. You know... When the Bible says that, that David was out with the sheep and the goats, what Jesse was literally saying is, Hey Samuel, I can't bring in my son David. He didn't go through the rite of purification. He's still dirty. He's out there and he's soiled. And so Jesse was concerned because he knew the cultural rule. He also knew the religious rule that no one can sit with the prophet unless they went through the process of purification. What does that look like? That means that you have to, every one of those seven sons had to take a shower. And all the women of the house say, Amen. His boys be like, I don't take a shower, but like two times a week. So they have to take a shower. They have to change their clothes. They have to all sit and confess their sins to the prophet. Seven showers, seven changes of clothes, seven confessions. That takes a while. Yeah, where is that written in scripture that they had to do that? Where'd you find this teaching from? Because I don't know any biblical text that teach that this was a requirement for anybody. And now, what do you do when the people who seemingly have it together aren't the people that God is looking to use? 
I mean, what do you do when the people who you thought for sure God's going to use my sister, she doesn't dance, drink, or chew, or go out with those who do? God, I, God's going to use my sister. I, what is this about you know, God needing to use people? It's a big thing in evangelism. I need God to use me. I want him to pick me. Please, God, choose me. Use me. Yeah. Um, what is all this anxiety about that? No, God won't use me. I'm still clubbing. I'm still soiled. I still have issues. My marriage is in chaos. My kids have drama. My life doesn't make sense. And we begin to excuse ourselves. When could it be that in this season in America, God isn't looking for the perfect, but he's looking for those who are willing to be perfected. He's not looking for perfect marriages. He's looking for marriages that'll go through the process. How do you heal a generation if you're so perfect? How do you heal the hearts of broken people? If you- and now he's just shouting, you know, and the theology he's spewing while shouting isn't really even biblical, and it has nothing to do with this text. He's really good at scratching ears. He knows the techniques of manipulation, and he's employing them. I don't know the pain of people. See, the truth is... The truth is, unless you become well acquainted with the people that you're called to liberate, how could you write their prescription? How can you write my prescription if you don't know my pain? And sometimes God will just shatter your dream so that you can know what it feels like to have a dream busted. So when people walk in the church, your heart is connected to them. I've come to tell you, Texas, God wants to change you because he wants to use you. Elevate. God wants to use you like he's never used you before. That's why he had to send your amigo, your Latino amigo from San Diego and tell you he's the God who breaks the rules. Come on, Frisco. Yeah, he's got. He got to tell you, he's the God who breaks the rules. Says no biblical text anywhere. He said, "Come on, Frisco, let's do this today. Let's do this today. Let's give him permission." You know, when I wrote this, right? Do it quick. Give God permission. Sign the form. It, it, you need to do it in legalese and stuff. Nonsense. Look, I wrote this book because the way God busted my heart. Is that he asked me to open up a campus and I didn't want to. We had- Oh man, he hears from God directly. And so God wanted him to do something and he said no. See, God was like, oh, what am I going to do? He has to give me permission. Five campuses and, and, and I was watching all my friends and they were opening up new campuses and really cool cities and, you know, it was awesome on Instagram and, and God asked me to open up a campus in Tijuana, in the prison of Tijuana. So we, we opened up a campus in Tijuana and it's great. It's growing. But then he asked me to open up a campus inside of a prison. Because one of our church members in Tijuana, she, you know, her son was, was indicted for a crime that he didn't commit. And he went to prison. I know everyone in prison is innocent. But this guy was really innocent, people. Okay, no, you need to hear this. When I tell you that God is the God of the paradox, he will let your life fall into a paradox just because he's thinking about other people. This wo- yeah, where in the Bible does he says that God will allow my life to fall into a paradox? You're, you're making stuff up. You're teaching doctrines that are not found in Scripture. And was faithful in the church. She was that one woman that you would never think 
that this would happen to her. Her family was on point. I mean, everything about them just flowed. It's like doors are always opening for this family. This was just the family that she just thought, well, you know, God just loves this family. Then her son gets indicted. He's in prison for nine months. And over there in Mexico, those prisons, you're like guilty till proven innocent, people. There is no due process like I need to see a judge within two weeks. Oh, no. You'll see a judge when they want you to see a judge. And their prison cells are not like in America. You know, in America, you get three meals a day. They wash your clothes. You get dental, insurance. Over there, unless a family member brings you clothes, you have to hustle clothes in the prison. Unless you have toilet paper, you've got to hustle toilet paper in the prison. And in their cells that are about 12 by 18, there's about 15 inmates that live in those cells. They stack them up and they put them on the ground. And so this guy is in the prison and he's reading my book, The Heart Revolution, and his life changes. And the social worker that... Yeah, the Bible doesn't changes life it's sergio de la mora's book changes his life uh. so all these inmates notices that he's changed and she starts reading the book and her life changes her office is three doors she starts reading the book hang on a second she wasn't in prison with him no that doesn't make any sense the social worker that helps all these inmates ah there it is social worker there notices that he's changed and she starts reading the book and her life changes. Her office is three doors from our church. See, I mean, all these miracles prove that the theology in this book is totally le- legit. It's It's got to be biblical because how could and people experience life change without that being true? Yeah, I would note that, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali had a uh, personal testimony he would tell about his life prior to... Islam. Yeah, yeah. In Islam, he experienced life change. She ends up going to Cornerstone. And you know what? Yes, God gets her. Why? Because God is after people's hearts. And this woman whose son is in the prison has no idea that the paradox of her life is about to start a heart revolution in that prison. Oh, yeah. The paradox is going to cause a heart revolution in a prison in Tijuana. Oh, it's it's got to be tr- yeah. Uh-huh. This sounds like uh, a yarn to me. Can you know now? Obviously, the story twenty twenty is clear. He goes to prison, and guess what? He ends up leaving prison completely innocent. They put it on the newspaper, and everyone is celebrating. And she comes to me crying and weeping, and says, "Why did God do this?" I said, "You got to wait and see. God always has a plan." And so when this woman gets saved she goes to the warden and the warden says hey what happened to you and she goes well i read this book by this guy sergio and i went to his church and i'm different he goes i know you are and he says to her if sergio can help you he can help all these guys bring them to me you know how many of you know it's jesus that changes people So I go to the prison. I've never been in prison, people. I've never been in jail. I've never even been in juvenile hall. Not to say I didn't do some antisocial things that probably should have placed me there. But hey, I've never been in the prison. And I'm walking into the Tijuana prison. Listen, people, this is where like the cartel is. It's dangerous. People disappear in this prison. I've never. What does this have to do with me rightly understanding 1 Samuel 16 again? I'm I'm failing to see the connection. Seen that movie by Mel Gibson called El Gringo? That is the prison that I'm in. 
crazy. It's nuts. I'm from San Diego. What am I doing here? But I go because this woman got so radically saved. The warden tells me, I want you to do with these men what you did with her. I said, well, no. He goes, what would you like to do? I said, I'll open up a campus here. I thought, you know, I'll put up a video screen like everyone in McKinney. Come on, everyone in McKinney. Just like you're there. I was hoping I'd just do this and dissolve, dissolve myself of the responsibility and say in the nombre del Padre, del Hijo, Espíritu Santo, be blessed. <laughs> and the warden says, oh, you want to open up a prison, a campus in the prison. You know, my Spanish isn't completely on point. I think he misunderstood me. He brought me to this plot of dirt right next to the main yard. And he says, I'll give you this piece of dirt to build your church. I'm like, no, I do not want to build a church. Because remember, in my mind, all my friends are starting campuses like in Newport Beach and really cool areas. And I'm feeling in that moment like God is penalizing me. Like, God, what did I do? Why can't I be like my friends on Instagram and have cool campuses? This sucks, God. Why, God? My Spanish isn't even that good. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, this is a real moment. Yeah, so we're getting a lot of theology from Sergio's life. I may, are we done with First Samuel? I, may, I get, Maybe, I don't know. It doesn't seem to have too much to do with what he's preaching about. Like, you know, right now it's cool. I have a book about it. I'm talking about it. But you guys, I was there, and I was like, I honestly felt like God was making fun of me. Like, God, oh, this is a joke. I can't even raise tithes in this place. And I'm gonna, it's over $100,000 to build that. And who's going to pay for this? Like, and then I'm sitting there and all, all I heard God say to me is, I'm asking you to do something that I know is breaking your rules. So that's when I came to learn the God who breaks the rules. So did God ask you to fill out the permission slip? I'm curious. So we built this campus. And not only did he break my rule, but the governor of Baja, I asked him, I said, do you want me to build this campus? Then write me a letter that states that this facility can only be used for the purposes of Cornerstone Church and whatever I desire for, and that you're not going to steal it or the warden's not going to hijack it and make fun of me. And so he said, I don't do this for anyone, but I'm going to do it for you. So God starts showing me that he breaks the rules for you. When you let him break your first rule. And so now... Yeah, you got to let God break your first rule, though. So, And then he, he'll, you know, break rules and stuff for you. <laughs> what does any of this mean? Every week, 80 men are being saved there. And I want you to watch this video. And I want you to see what the God who breaks the rules does. Come on, somebody. Take a look at this today. All right. Now, I'm going to fast forward through the video because, you know, this is not where we get our theology from. And it it's just basically a commercial for Sergio de la Mora is the way I kind of see it. But all right. Here, here's uh, now coming back to uh, coming back to the sermon itself. Come on, give God praise today. Give him praise today. Tell you, he's the God who breaks the rules, people. I said he's the God who breaks the rules. And he'll find you. And he'll call you. And he'll choose you when others have overlooked you. Stand with me today, would you? And so, 
So like next week for Father's Day, Pastor Keith has been mentioning it. Our goal is to give a book to 500 men in the prison of Paradox. So whatever you, this is my only little sales pitch for the book. Like if you buy it, if you buy three or four, whatever you buy. And so sales pitch for the book in the body of the sermon. We, the um, publisher will help me get a book into every hand of these 500 inmates. We're starting there. Because my goal is to get a paradox book in the cell of every man. Let me tell you why. I am the only person outside of an actual uh, jail, a prison official, who's been given permission to walk the cells. They don't give anyone the permission to it. It's partly because of the inhumane condition. I asked if they would let me do it. And, and I walked through the cells. And that's why I tell you there's 15 guys in these cells. It's inhumane. And so I'm walking through these cells and I'm talking to these guys. And I'm listening to them. There's older guys with younger guys. And in every cell, you could tell who's who. You could tell who's the boss and who's not the boss. And it's heartbreaking because you're watching men like in a chicken coop. And I was, I had to leave because the service was going to start. And as I was leaving, this one guy in Spanish says, Oye, pastor, no te olvidas de mi. And that what that means is, Pastor, don't forget about me. Because I had this really intense conversation with this guy. And I turn around, and I have to turn back around because I start crying. Because I know I'm going to go live in a nice house in San Diego after this. I know I'm going to drive a really nice car, have a really nice life. Note the sappy music. That is an emotional manipulation technique. But these guys right here who are desperate will never, they, they, they only leave their cell for two hours every week. See, it's not like prisons in America. And this guy goes, Pastor, don't forget about me. And I turn around and I have to turn back around as I start crying because I realize, God, like, you're breaking me here. Don't do this to me. And God started telling me, Sergio, you're not the first guy I wanted to come and do this. And, and I'll tell you why I said yes. Because when I got saved, like, thank you for, like, appreciating my sermon. But the guy who's preaching to you today, with the day that I got saved, I was a cocaine addict at 17 years old. I was the number one disc jockey in my city. I was about to sign a seven-year record contract. Before those 17-year-olds, when I was 15, I was stabbed in my back, gang fighting. When I was 12 years old, I was the number one skateboarder in my city. But I had to give up skateboarding to join the gang and that's when I started smoking PCP, doing drugs. No one would have thought that Sergio de la Mora would have led one of the fastest growing churches in America. No one would have thought that I would ever be a preacher. And when I was in that prison, God told me, you think these guys are in prison and that you're embarrassed for them. And I was. And God told me, where you live, those people in those nice homes, they're in the same prison, Sergio. It's just that they're in a different prison. And Sergio, if you can't set them free, how could you set your community free? You've got to grow your heart for pro. God, God told you that, that you had to grow your heart and stuff. God told you that? If God told you that, it wasn't God because what you're saying actually is a different theology than the God of the Bible revealed in Scripture. People, because I forgot. 
I forgot where God found me. I forgot that the first day I went to a Christian church because I was a good Catholic and I got a flyer. I went to a Christian church. I snorted a half a gram of cocaine before I went to church. I'm not proud of that. But that's why I believe in the God who breaks the rules. Because you would have never thought when I was, got saved that I would be here in Texas preaching. And the truth is, many of you today, you've come to church and you actually think that you're not qualified to be used by God when you are the one that he needs more than ever. (laughs) Some of you today, you've come and you've never given your life fully to Christ. And I've come to tell you, you're never given your life fully. Notice this guy is not preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So you, you've never given your life fully to God and you haven't signed all the necessary permission sh- uh, slips for him to be able to break rules and stuff in your life. What a load of malarkey. One he wants. When I wrote this book, five publishers rejected it. I had the number one. Yeah, I bet some of them did on theological grounds that it's just rank heresy. Person. Go and help me. The one that does Jake's, Joyce, Joel, Furtick, Judah's book. Yeah, that's a list of heretics right there. So you found a publisher who will publish heresy because they, they publish all the books written by other heretics. She was helping me get it published and five publishers turned it down. You know what they told me? We cannot support a book that teaches that God breaks rules. And I never forget this conversation I had with this publisher. I got to the point where I went gangster on them. I mean, I'm sorry, but I did. And you know what I said? I said, of course you wouldn't. I said, you're in Missouri and you live in suburbia. How could you understand the context of why I wrote this book? And I told this person, if you lived in my hood and you understood the stories of prostitutes that have gotten saved in my church, that men who have, who, who have hurt their families that are loving their kids now, then you would not understand because you live in a different context. But the God that I serve, he's proven to me that he breaks rules. And if you're not going to do it... Yeah, he's proven that to me by my life experiences, not any biblical text. If, if only you just had my life experiences, you'd have my theology too. And there it is. You can see his theology is not biblical. It's based upon his interpretation of his own experiences. Someone's going to do it because that's who he is. He's the God who breaks the rules. Man. Gosh. Jesus. Okay, let's pray right now. Let's pray. Everyone just just stand. Just stand. Just look. Done. Yeah. Train wreck with a shameless plug in the middle of it to uh you know for you to buy his book. And nothing in his book, <laughs> nothing in the sermon, even remotely, makes it sound like this guy knows how to properly handle a biblical text. It's very clear he has no clue that the Bible is about Jesus and his theology, well, I hate to say it, it's damnable. It could send people to hell. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. 
Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.